Hey everyone, welcome back to my podcast. I'm Jesse Nealon and this is Not About Your Body, the podcast where we talk about all the things that are really going on when we talk about body image issues that nobody wants to talk about. Um, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about desire. And uh, I've talked about this before. If you've been listening since the beginning, you might have heard me talk about this. Um, if you are aware of my body image avatars, then you probably already know that one of them is the self-objectifier. If you don't know about that already, I can include a link. I've got lots of um, content on it. But basically, one of the root causes for body image suffering is self-objectification. And it's really, really common, as you can imagine, particularly among women and femmes, um, because we live in a culture that sexualizes and objectifies women and femmes. So we learn to do that to ourselves, we learn to see ourselves through that lens, we learn to associate our worth with how we look, we learn to think of um, sort of everything in life as slightly transactional, where it's like I have to look a certain way in order to be given the status, the respect, the um, acceptance, whatever it is that we're looking for with being attractive. So the self-objectifier is one of the big root causes for why people end up resenting, hating, uh, wanting to change their bodies. And when I talk to a self-objectifier about what it is that they really want, like what they imagine would be different if they were able to actually get their dream body or, you know, like lose the weight or look how they want to look, the answer often is sort of wrapped up in a misunderstanding of how desire, attraction, and arousal work. So, that's why I want to talk about it today. Also, it's Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day if you're into that. Um, you know, I figured it would be thematically kind of interesting to be able to talk a little bit about attraction, desire, and arousal on a day that is all about like sex and love. So basically what I want to share first is the way that the self-objectifier tends to see desire, like how it works in the self-objectifier's mind. It's mostly aesthetically based. Like the idea is that attraction and getting turned on and wanting someone pretty much come down to aesthetics, like visuals. And so they imagine, okay, you know, uh, let's say a guy sees a girl. She's conventionally attractive. He gets turned on. He wants to sleep with her. And it it all started with the visual of him looking at her, right? There's this... Um, idea that the whole thing centers around the visual element of uh, what draws people to each other. And of course, there is some truth to that. Like, absolutely, we are drawn to people's different aesthetics, and we notice different aesthetics. And, you know, attraction is in part visual for many of us. But I'd say for the majority of my self-objectifiers, that's where it stops. Like they don't think of it as being part of a more complex web of what creates desire. They think of it as being the whole sum of what creates desire. And then when it turns to arousal, the same thing applies. They start thinking, okay, like how a person gets turned on and maybe, you know, what leads to a satisfying sexual experience for someone. A lot of that comes down to um, the visuals in their minds. They imagine their partner getting super turned on by looking at them, maybe touching them, um, but a lot of it is still visual. And so they find it really difficult. A lot of times they'll tell me, I can't understand 
why my partner wants to sleep with me. Like I'm not conventionally attractive. I've gained all this weight. You know, I don't feel sexy. I don't get why he wants to have sex with me. And part of the reason this is such a confusing (laughs) topic for self-objectifiers is because they are not able to see the various complex and diverse ways that lead someone to feel turned on, to feel attracted, to feel aroused. Um, They are mostly focused on this being a visual, aesthetically driven experience. So yeah, like even if (laughs) their partner says, I just think you're really hot, they're not focused on... um, Well, rather, they they find it harder to uh, believe them because they're not conventionally attractive. So again, this is the other piece of it. It's not just, I think it comes down to finding something visually pleasing and attractive. It's, I think it has to be conventionally attractive for them to be attracted. And then from there, it's like this sort of uh, docking points system in their mind. Like, okay, well, you know, I look good in these ways, but not in those ways, which means I'm like, losing points or whatever and I'm only a little attractive which means I'm sort of in danger which means if I see someone else who's more attractive or if he sees someone else who's more attractive that person is a threat to me because they they have more points you know they're more conventionally attractive he's going to want to sleep with her more now this horrible line of thinking and believing that a lot of self-objectifiers are are really unfortunately influenced by drives their partners crazy a lot of the time because their partners are often like, what are you talking about? A, I think you are hot. Like you do turn me on visually and aesthetically. And B, even if you didn't uh, turn me on aesthetically, so much else about this and you and us does that like, I still want to sleep with you because you're amazing and you turn me on even if I, you know, am drawn to a different aesthetic. I'm still turned on by you. And part of this also, I think just it has to be said, there's a very uncreative perspective in the self-objectifier mind a lot of times uh, that desire is, you know, it's it's purely aesthetic. It's based in conventional beauty norms, meaning like it, it has to be close to this uh, very particular ideal. And it doesn't include anything else that could be turning a person on, such as emotional connection or, you know, uh, just preferences or diversity or whatever. And there's this idea that there's one thing that everybody wants to sleep with and gets turned on by and likes best. And everything else is like a downgraded, you know, um, stand in. So there's this idea. It's like, okay, well, you'd want to be sleeping with a perfect 10, you know, and maybe you imagine that to be like a very Hollywood celebrity, skinny, big boobs, uh, big butt, long hair, perfect skin, uh, 25 years old, blonde, blue eyes, whatever, right? So this is your image in your head. This is the 10. And this is what your partner would want to be sleeping with. And, And maybe you know that he's attracted to this because you've heard him make comments or you've seen the kind of porn that he watches or, you know, whatever it is. So you're like, okay, well, I know he likes that. He's attracted to that. That turns him on. So everything else is just less good, less sexy, less arousing, less of a turn on, less attractive. And that's where the self-objectifier is, I mean, honestly, they're wrong in so many levels, but this is where they end up torturing themselves because they hold this ideal, this ideal that they made up and their partner almost exclusively will not agree with. Um, And then they think of themselves as just being a less good version of that. You know, they think of all the ways in which they are failing this ideal 
And I've had self-objectifiers tell me that they felt legitimately guilty for, for keeping their partner from getting the fully arousing experience that they deserve. That like a woman, you know, that I've, I've talked to a woman who said, I feel guilty that he doesn't get to sleep with somebody with bigger boobs because I know he likes bigger boobs. I know he's probably disappointed with mine. And I feel so guilty that by being with me, he has given up his opportunity to sleep with someone with bigger boobs. This is a deeply, deeply painful way of viewing their relationship, right? A very objectifying way of viewing herself because he has never said this. He acknowledges that he likes boobs and she has seen that he likes porn with big boobs, but he has never said, I'm so sad that your boobs are small. He has never said, God, I wish they were bigger. And I, you know, I feel like I'm missing out on something in life. He's happy, right? He's turned on by her body, by her. He's happy in the relationship. He loves her for so many more reasons than this. It's not an issue for him, but it's an issue for her because she's been seeing, she's been taught to see herself through this lens where desire is like not in any way a complex landscape full of diverse things a person could like and want and feel, but rather a hierarchy in which there is something at the top and then everything else falls below it and is a disappointment. And to think of herself as sort of being this um, opportunity cost kind of thing, like because he chose me, he doesn't get to have what he really wants, even though he chose her because that's what he wants. So this is a horrible self-torturing perspective and unfortunately it's really really common so I'm I'm hoping that by walking you through all of those things you can see the sort of error in logic at each stage right like um, your partner any partner might be into lots of stuff big boobs small boobs no boobs uh, you know they might be into different weights and shapes and sizes and heights and hair color and you know aesthetic and all of that could turn them on, which means that this idea of a hierarchy of a perfect 10 and then everything else being below it is nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. But it's taught to us through the, the lens of like these beauty ideals being a hierarchy, that there are like a sort of competition, particularly among women, that there is a competition of who's hotter and it's a constant ranking system as if there was one perfect ideal and we are all just being held up on this hierarchy. Like that's how we're taught to think of women and how to think of ourselves. So that's where it comes from, but it's wrong. I don't know about you, but I'm into lots of different aesthetics. Like there are certainly people who have, you know, fetishy preferences. There are people who only like one kind of aesthetic, I suppose, but those people are pretty rare actually. And usually it is, like I said, it, it is a fetishization of something very particular. So in that way, it is a way outside the norm. It is more of like a kink or, or a fetish that they are drawn to usually for a good reason, but like sometimes not necessarily a reason that they know. Sometimes it was something that influenced them during their development. Sometimes it's just something that they've discovered they like or has been eroticized for them. But like that is outside the norm in terms of like statistically anyway, outside the, the average anyway. And what is much more common is for people to be drawn to lots of different aesthetics. So I personally see um, men and women who do not meet the aesthetic conventional ideal who I am attracted to 
all the time and actually find that people who do meet those ideals, I often am not attracted to. And I, I'm not unusual, right? So maybe you as well are drawn to people or feel attracted to people who are not meeting conventional beauty ideals. And the same is true for so many other people. And if you, if you are not one of these people, which is totally valid, maybe you're only drawn to people who are a 10 out of 10 in your mind, like really, really match these beauty ideals. I would say you actually have a lot of um, dismantling of systems of oppression to do to challenge things like standards of masculinity leading to a perfect 10 for a man. What does that mean? Where did you learn it? How does it impact you? Like there's a lot to uh, examine and unpack when you are in this camp of actually only being attracted to conventional beauty ideals. And same, same for everyone. You know, the cool thing I think about being attracted to non-binary folks is that they are the only people who are outside of this binary system of aesthetic standards around gender. You know, there is a very particular aesthetic standard in our conventional beauty norm culture for men and for women, but there isn't for everyone else. So, you know, it's just, uh, there's a lot to explore there around gender, race, um, I don't know, height, <laughs> masculinity, femininity, uh, age. There's so much to explore. And that work will very often lead to you being more attracted to more people. When you are able to challenge those oppressive internalized systems of um, hierarchy and who is attractive, you will often notice that who you're attracted to changes. Not everyone. I don't want to say that's like true for everyone, but it, it is something that I've noticed among my clients, something that I've personally experienced. So if someone is actually in this camp, let's say some dude is like, I only date perfect tens and everyone else is a disappointment to me. Like he, he fulfills the stereotype that a lot of self-objectifiers hold. I would argue that that dude sucks for a lot of reasons. And you don't want to be dating him anyway. And you don't want to be sleeping with him anyway, because he has internalized a shit ton of systems of oppression that have led him to a place where he can't connect to his actual internal sense of attractiveness and desire. It has been con um, cultivated for him by external messaging around beauty, ideals, status, masculinity, and femininity. And so he is going to suck for a lot of reasons. He's going to be a bad person to partner with. He is not going to be a safe place for you to be, like emotionally, because he is not actually really fully himself. You know, he's just regurgitating a lot of what he learned he was supposed to like. And that man does not have enough self-awareness to be a good partner as far as I'm concerned. Plus, he's probably just going to be shitty and say a bunch of offensive stuff <laughs> and be really boring. So worst case scenario here, the self-objectifiers um, sort of fantasy of what could happen of like the way that desire works and the worst case scenario would be re being rejected because someone looked at them and went, you're a disappointment and I'm only interested in more conventionally attractive people. We're really talking a very small percentage of people who suck. Most people experience a much more rich, complex and diverse set of attractions, desires, arousal triggers, you know, um, turn-ons. And yeah, most people do not equate conventional beauty ideals with what is most attractive because they have their own stuff going on and they're connected to that. Um, just as an example, I hear from 
fat women all the time who say that men will not want to date them because of the social stigma attached to having a fat girlfriend, but they will still want to sleep with them because they find them attractive, which is a pretty messed up situation. And those people also suck and would not be safe people to date or partner with. But it really shows us that there is so much of the the stuff we've learned about who's attractive is based on social status and hierarchy, not on what makes people feel turned on, you know? So lots of people who are not conventionally attractive are having lots of sex and turning lots of people on. Conventional beauty ideals have pretty much nothing to do with individual experiences of arousal and attraction. We can all acknowledge them. There is a shared space around being like, we all sort of know, oh, that movie star is good looking. Um, you know, I can say that, well, I can't think of any examples right now, but there's like uh, plenty of, of dudes in Hollywood that I can say, yes, I recognize that he is good looking, he's hot, but not feel attracted to him, you know? And women too. But this is something that I always invite myself objectifiers into a more complex relationship and conversation because what they're doing to themselves is using a whole bunch of lies about how this works to hurt themselves. It is self-harm. Self-objectification is self-harm. And the behaviors that go with it are self-harm. And the body image issues that go with it are self-harm. And a lot of the, frankly, just the mindset and, and the partners that they're that they choose and that they're willing to connect with sexually and emotionally, like that can be self-harm too. And a lot of it comes from this perspective of being high value or low value based on a hierarchy that is extremely narrow and linear and based on conventional hotness. And the idea that your partner has one perfect kind of thing that they like and that nothing else should turn them on. And therefore you are in danger constantly Oh, because also, obviously, as a self-objectifier, your value to your partner is in how much you turn them on, how much you sexually satisfy them, which means how much you turn them on. So from that place, like, you can only ever live in insecurity. You will only ever torture yourself with things like jealousy in comparison to others. You will only ever worry and feel insecure about them loving you. You know, they could propose to you. They could have kids with you and you're still going to be there going, I don't know if this is really safe or secure. I kind of worry that they're going to leave me for someone else who's more attractive. Why? Because I have so deeply internalized the idea that my value to them is in my attractiveness and that my attractiveness is in my, con my conforming to conventional beauty ideals. That that's why they love me and I'm failing, which means it's, it's all threatened. I mean, it's, it's super scary. And I talk to so many people, particularly women in this, in this camp who are like, he usually, okay, so it's usually women who partner with men. So forgive all of my heteronormative pronoun use here in these examples, but like this is where self-objectification comes up the most um, just because of the patriarchy and everything that we've all been taught about different people and genders. But, you know, a lot of times I will have these women tell me like, he says he's happy with me, but I don't believe him. He says he's satisfied, but I don't believe him. He says I turn him on, but I don't believe him. It starts to erode trust, which makes you feel really, really insecure. And that starts to ruin relationships, honestly, 
Because if somebody is <laughs> telling you, I'm really into you, I'm really into your body, I love you so much, I'm so happy we're together, I want to have sex with you, and you're like, mm, that doesn't sound true, I don't believe you, there's no way, couldn't be possible, like you are rejecting them a lot. You are fundamentally pushing them away, rejecting their truth, making them feel erased and invisible. I mean, that is hard on a relationship as is them just wanting to love up on you and having that feel pushed away or challenged or inaccessible because you're thinking, I'm not hot enough for you. I mean, that's really frustrating. Can you imagine if like, I don't know, in an example that would maybe <laughs> sort of silly, but like your dog who you love so much and is like the cutest dog ever. And if you went up to your dog every time that you were just feeling overwhelmed with like, oh my God, you're the cutest and I love you. And your dog was like, mm, do you though? that doesn't seem real. And your dog was like, don't pet me. I'm not worthy of being pet today because I'm not cute enough. <laughs> and you're like, ah, like, I just want to pet you and love you. And you're so cute. That would suck. So I say all this because it's really hard on a relationship. It harms the relationship. And it's really hard in the self-objectifier's head. Um, it's self-harm to hold all of these beliefs about attraction and desire. And something that we know is like there is a lot that actually goes into attraction and desire that has nothing to do with visual aesthetics, just to challenge that one a little further. You know, things like pheromones. Have you ever looked at someone and you're like, oh, that person's so good looking. Oh, my God. And then you kind of get in close enough to maybe, you know, you're thinking maybe I'll go in for a kiss or, or something. Right. And then you're like, you know what? This is not working for me. I don't know why. I feel no sparks. I feel no you know, kind of buzzy feelings. It's just, I'm, I'm not into that. And sometimes that's just for pheromones. Like you're literally just some signal from your immune system is like, nah, <laughs> let's, let's not pick this one. Keep looking. And I know so many people who have like uh, kissed people they were really hoping they would finally connect with and there was no sparks and they were so disappointed. And there's factors at play there that have nothing to do with how attractive that person was to them visually, right? Like, it just sometimes doesn't feel good. It doesn't light us up. It doesn't turn us on. And that's okay. But there's stuff there under our conscious radar. And the same is true for things like emotional connection. So many people are influenced in how they get turned on by emotional connection. So many people struggle to feel in the mood for sex or to get turned on um, or want to have sex when they are feeling emotionally distant from someone. You know, if your partner and you are fighting and then they're like, hey, sorry for being a shithead, let's have sex. Like you might feel in your body something a lot closer to disgust or like, yeah, like a, a real pushing away of that idea. Like, are you serious? No chance. That is the last thing I want to do right now. Whereas if you and your partner are in a really wonderful, romantic, sweet moment and they're like really seeing you and you feel really heard and valued and appreciated and then they're like suggesting sex, it might sound like the best thing ever. Like, heck, yes, let's do this. You're so hot. I feel so good. I feel so close to you. Absolutely, I want to be physical. And it should be said here because I just finished the book Ace, which is on asexuality and it's fantastic and everyone should read it, um, that not everybody experiences desire at all. Not everybody experiences attraction to anyone. Not everybody experiences arousal. And there are a lot of different, really interesting um, sort of in-betweens in the gray area between what we've sort of been taught 
our options are. So we've basically been taught you can want sex a lot or you can want sex a little. (laughs) And nobody has ever taught us, hey, you can actually just not want sex. Or you could not feel a desire for sex coming from arousal in your body, but you might still choose to want to have it because of some other reason, like a desire to be close to your partner or, you know, something like that. So there's, there's a lot more complexity to this topic than the really unoriginal, based in lies, self-objectifier perspective would have you believe. And yet that perspective is what gets uh, so much exposure. You know, it is so, so common to hear this perspective and so, so difficult to poke holes in it. Like I'll sometimes talk to uh, my self-objectifiers and I'll say all this stuff and they'll still be like, yeah, but men are visual. So (laughs) like it is really difficult to get someone to give up this perspective because it is deeply, deeply ingrained and reinforced. So also just to talk to that for a moment, like sure, men are visual. That means that they um, get turned on by looking at things that are are turn-ons to them slightly more than... um, women do in some studies. This isn't even like particularly well-researched, but it does seem that they might have more of a a stimulating effect to look at things that turn them on. But that has nothing to do with conventional beauty ideals. Nothing at all. It just means they, they sort of eat with their eyes a little bit more than women maybe, you know, when it comes to what turns them on. Um, And some studies totally are, they make it look like that's not true at all. And that actually we all do, but men have been taught to talk about that aspect and really connect with that aspect. And women have been taught not to connect with that aspect or to talk to talk about it because it makes us sound weird when we've been taught that women crave emotional connection and men crave hot bodies, you know? So all of this is to say that, uh, yeah, if you've been falling into that camp of lies and beliefs about yourself only having value to your partner as um, titillation and or sexual satisfaction, that that is a huge problem. And if they believe it too, that's even bigger of a problem because holy cow, that is a lie and it is self-harm. And if you are single and you are looking for someone who values for you, you for how you look and you want to feel you know, objectified and hot, like that's some stuff to look at. I work with people all the time in that camp. It's painful and it's hard, but it's important work because otherwise you will find someone who is willing to objectify you and will not make you feel secure and loved in your partnership. And if you're single and just, I don't know, feeling bad this Valentine's Day about the fact that nobody's chosen you and you have any little stories in your head about what it means about your attractiveness or your desirability, or whatever, I would encourage you to challenge some of that stuff and also spend a little time thinking about what you want. Because a lot of what we've been taught, again, especially as women, is to think about what other people want from us. And we're really not taught to think quite as deeply about what we want. Plus, that brings up a lot of worthiness stuff, you know, like, do I deserve what I want? Is it okay to want what I want? Do I want too much? Am I asking too much? Like it brings up a lot of stuff, but it's important because self-subjectification, which is what I think of as the sort of healing path away from self-objectification, is where you start to center yourself as a whole ass human. And that means you decide, I want this and 
And whether that's a particular kind of sex, a particular kind of person, a particular kind of partnership, like that is now what you are looking for. Not for someone else to choose you, not for someone else to objectify you or think that you meet their little standard of what's hot, but you're looking for what you want. And that's beautiful. Uh, It's empowered. It's more likely to get you what you want. And also it totally turns this weird power structure on its head that you're like, oh, you know, if you're single right now, it's because nobody chose you. That's bullshit. You could go, you could go get sex right now. Literally any of you listening to this right now, if you really wanted to, you could, but you don't want to because that is not what you want. So what do you want? Because you could also probably find someone to partner with right now. There are people who like you. There always are. But are those the people who, who you like? You know, like what are you looking for? Get really deep into what you want and start demanding that the world meet it, you know, instead of uh, hoping that someone else gives you crumbs. And again, for women who partner with men, man, we have really been taught to accept crumbs. We have been taught that um, like good enough is good enough. You know, we're not going to get anything better than that. So I love the idea of getting really, really into our own needs and desires and saying, this is my standard. This is my bar. And I'm not with someone right now because I haven't met someone who meets that yet. So yeah, desire, fascinating. God, I could go on about this all day, but this has already been half an hour. Um, I also wanted to talk about arousal and pleasure though. And I I don't know that I have time now, but I also just wanted to suggest um, that if you are, well, actually, if you're partnered or alone right now, um, just to, to encourage you to tune into your own pleasure and to tune into your own arousal and figure out what that looks like for you. And if you don't experience these things, no worries at all. Obviously, like you are the expert on you. But if you do experience these things or you don't know because you've never explored them, it can be really powerful to connect to desire through your own desire and alter the way that you think about it from the external to the internal. So instead of like, oh, someone else wants me, it's like, what do I want, right? Instead of I'm turning someone else on, it's I'm feeling turned on. What turns me on? What feels good in my body? What kind of touch do I like? What kind of kinks am I into? What kind of stuff really gets me going? And that is the kind of stuff that will start, if you tune into that and really prioritize that and learn that in your own body, it will start to rewire how you understand desire to work in others. And that is powerful. So this was another thing I wanted to say for any of my self-objectifiers listening. If you haven't yet done this work, Start learning what turns you on, start learning what feels good, and start prioritizing your own experience of arousal, desire, and pleasure. And like I said before, tune into what you're attracted to, because sometimes that has some information for you. Again, if you're only into like a very particular kind of person, that might just be true for you and that's okay. It also might represent some kind of um, internalized Uh, oppression, biases, stigma, that kind of thing. And it might be worth looking at. So yeah, I guess that's everything. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day, y'all. And uh, (laughs) I am glad to be here. Thank you for listening. And uh, I will catch you on the next episode.